You're listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. For more teaching and resources, visit LargerStory.com. Inevitably, when I talk about a subject like marriage, there are people who feel the material really is not particularly germane or relevant to their situation, either because you're single, perhaps widowed, perhaps separated or divorced, perhaps a little bit older. Some folks have said it's been good to hear this 30 years ago. Let me suggest that there's never a teaching from the Word of God that, that, that can't be profitable no matter what your circumstances. Let me suggest one way in which material that might not be directly relevant to your situation can be helpful. Are you aware, I'm sure many of you are, of how many people that you sit next to here at Word of Life, or I'm thinking more particularly back in our local churches, how many folks that we're sitting next to are really hurting about some things? Just incredible. At our home church, when I get up to preach and I look over the audience and we have maybe 300, 400 people, I can look over there and see that person who's depressed because I talked to them yesterday that person who called me last night at midnight with a suicide phone call, that person over there who was just separated, that person over there who was so scared of their own shadow they won't leave their home. As I look at over all these problems, I say, Lord, what's the solution? Is the solution to get more psychologists running around? Folks, the answer is no. (laughs) Let me tell you where counseling belongs. My conviction, my strong conviction is that counseling does not essentially, primarily, belong in my office. It belongs in the local church. When you think of what a counselor really does, it's so different than a dentist or a physician or some other kind of profession. A dentist or a physician takes care of problems to which the Bible does not directly speak. There's nothing in Scripture about how to fix a diseased tooth. But what I deal with in my office are people who are hurting in certain areas, people who have deep resentments, people who are very insecure, people who are very jealous, people who perhaps are greedy about some things, people who are consumed by fear. I deal with problems to which the Bible speaks. Where does counseling belong? Where the Bible is known, where the Bible is practiced. There are three basic ingredients to effective counseling. I believe, this is all by way of this introduction, There are at least three basic ingredients to effective counseling. One is encouragement. Where does encouragement belong? Do you pay a professional to encourage you? There's a book written called The Purchase of Friendship Describing Psychotherapy. That's sad. Encouragement belongs in the local church. Hebrews 10 talks about, let's not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, but let's gather together, let's encourage each other, the scriptures teach. A major ingredient of counseling is encouragement. Hey, I believe in you, I care, I want to help, I'm here, I'm burdened for you, I'll pray with you. Just the interest of another human being who will listen. That's a large portion of what I do and charge high fees for. And the local church can do that. don't need me. A second major ingredient is exhortation. Look, here's how the Bible applies to your situation. Let me exhort you to do this. Let me exhort you to do that. Much of counseling is exhortation, giving specific direction. You have a problem? Here are some solutions. Do this, this, and this. 
Now, where are the counseling prescriptions? Where do we get our behavioral standards? Where do we get our norms? Who's supposed to be exhorting and what authority? <coughs> Professional secular counselor or people in the local church? Pastors, elders, deacons, Sunday school teachers, mature Christians who care about each other. A third essential ingredient in counseling is what I call enlightenment. Enlightenment. We need to be encouraged, need to be exhorted, need to be enlightened. We need to understand how a lot of us are really living our lives according to wrong thinking. A lot of us way down deep, way down in our unconscious somewhere, have a wrong idea that somehow what life is really all about is getting recognition or avoiding rejection. Somewhere down deep we've learned a bunch of ideas that we build our lives upon. We need to be enlightened that, in fact, I don't need recognition in order to be a worthwhile person. I don't need to be not rejected by you in order to be a worthwhile person. I don't need a lot of these things that I thought I did as a foolish child. I grew up thinking that I could make it apart from God, so I looked for other bases for making it, and I learned a bunch of nonsense about what it takes to make it. And I need to be enlightened as to the truth that Christ really is sufficient for my needs. Now, where should that take place? Professional's office or the local church? I believe counseling belongs to the local church and not in my office. The fact that I exist is a concession to the fact that the local church isn't doing its job. I believe that. To that end, I've just developed something called the Institute of Biblical Counseling, IBC. And IBC is dedicated to the proposition that mature, caring Christians can carry on the work of counseling effectively, provided they have some maturity in Christ, provided they understand the Word of God to some degree, and provided they have certain training. I believe counseling does not necessarily come naturally, although it's very interesting that uh, Hans Strupp, who was a very well-known secular psychotherapist from Vanderbilt University, did a study recently. He wanted to determine whether or not psychotherapy really works. And he's a very leading secular psychotherapist in our nation. And he did a study where he took trained therapists, trained professionals, psychiatrists, psychologists, and a number of the people that were coming for counseling he assigned to these trained therapists. Then he took a number of other people who were professors at the university, professors in English or literature or history or physics or whatever, who were just kind of, you know, nice people. And he had them counseled. You know what the results were? Comparable. Now, what does that tell you? A good part of counseling is relationship. Somebody who cares, who can listen, who can understand, who takes the time, the trouble, to put his mind to the task of saying, I listen to you, I want to hear you, I want to know where you are. Now add to that capacity for relationship a certain amount of training, understanding how to communicate, understanding biblical principles as they apply to life, understanding how to get through layers to down where people really are, add some training, and I think we can produce some perfect counselors in our local churches. And IBC is dedicated to the proposition that counseling can be done effectively. 80, 90% of what I do doesn't require my training to do it. It can be done by mature people in the local church. And I'm training a bunch of people down in South Florida now in the local churches to, to counsel. I trained about 13 people in our church in counseling in a six-month course. And these people now are doing a bang-up job, many of them. And we're seeing needs being met through the local church, as the resources that are available in Scripture, that are available in Christ by His Spirit, are being ministered by people who understand something about counseling. So as you listen to this material, don't think it's relevant to somebody else and not to you. Perhaps this can be used in your life when you come into contact with somebody else to whom you can minister. Turn to the book of Esther, would you? 
for our discussion of husbands today. I'll bet you didn't expect the book of Esther to come into the practice today. Take your time in finding it. When I was a kid and people would give out a book that I couldn't find, what I would do, if people were looking at me, I would thumb in through my scripture for an appropriate length of time, and then I would stop wherever I was. And I would follow along very carefully in the Psalms or in Haggai or someplace while the preacher was reading in Esther or someplace that I couldn't find. So take your time and find the book of Esther. Right after Nehemiah. I want to discuss husbands today. Appreciate you men coming. I know your wives dragged you here in some cases. We're going to skim through this first chapter or so of Esther, and I'm going to read it just in portions, just to get the gist of the story. I'm sure most of you are familiar with the narrative as is related here. Esther chapter 1 and verse 1. Now it took place in the days of Ahasuerus. And by the way, when you're reading scripture and you're not sure how to pronounce a word, just say it confidently, and people will think you know. And now it took place in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, verse 4, Ahasuerus displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for many days, 180 days. And the king gave a banquet, verse 5, lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Susa the capital, from the greatest to the least. In verse 6 and 7 and 8, talks about all the trimmings that he had at his glorious party. Verse 9, Queen Vashti, the king's wife, also gave a banquet for the women in the palace which belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abacala, Zether, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princes, for she was beautiful. Verse 12, listen to this submission. Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. And what did the husband do? He got mad. And the king became very angry, and his wrath burned within him. Colossians says, Husbands, be not embittered against your wives. King Ahasuerus was embittered against his wife. Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for it was the custom of the king so to speak before all who knew the law and justice, and he went on to ask them, what shall we do about the situation with Queen Vashti? In verse 16, and in the presence of the king and the princes, Memucan said, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also the princes and all the people who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, for the queen's conduct will become known to all the women causing them to look with contempt on their husbands. Ah, by saying, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought into, the presence, into his presence, but she didn't come. And this day, the ladies of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's conduct, will speak in the same way to all the king's princes, and there will be plenty of contempt and anger. If it pleases the king, let a royal edict be issued by him. And let it be written in the laws of Persia, and media so that it cannot be repealed that Vashti should be banished. That's the thought. That Vashti should be banished. Chapter 2. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had subsided, 
He remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her, but rather than righting the wrong, he remembered what she had been able to do for him. She was a companion. She was a physical partner. She was a good-looking woman. And he missed that. He didn't miss her. He missed what she had for him. Verse 2, the king's attendants who served him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king, and let the king appoint overseers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather every beautiful young virgin to the Seuss of the capital, to the harem, into the custody of Hegei, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them. Let the young lady who pleases the king be queen in place of Vashti, and the matter pleased the king, and he did accordingly. We'll end our reading at this point. And I want to spend the first part of our time today illustrating what husbands should not do from the story of King Ahasuerus. And I want to talk about several steps that King Ahasuerus went through, several things that the king did, which we do, which get us in trouble. Step one. Look back at chapter one. In verse four, the king displayed the riches of his royal glory. What was the king occupied with? What need do you suppose was being met by his displaying how wealthy he was? Don't you suppose the king is saying, look, I'm a somebody. Look how important, what a big shot I am. Look at all that I have. I am primarily obsessed with my needs, with my needs to be a somebody, with my needs for adequacy, with my needs for significance. Step number one, if you want to be an unbiblical poor husband and destroy your home is be concerned with your own needs for significance. How does my wife make me feel? Am I significant? Do I feel good about me? What can I get to feel good about me? Be preoccupied with your own significance. Step number one. A lot of people are there. A lot of people are there not because they really consciously choose to be there, a lot of people are there because of situations that have taken place in their life that they've never really worked through and conquered and gotten a hold of. I've said before in a repeated theme that runs through all of the sessions that I've been delivering has been that we all do have basic needs. Made in the image of God as persons, we have certain needs that only Christ can satisfy. A need for significance, a need to be a somebody, a need for security, a need to be unconditionally loved. We need purpose and love. We need significance. We need security. And because we're foolish people, we've all learned a bunch of nonsense as to how to get those needs met. And way down deep, a lot of us are still operating on a wrong understanding of where our needs come from. A very interesting question to ask people in counseling is this. What was the biggest hurt you've ever experienced in your life? What was the biggest hurt? Emotional, personal, not physical. Hurt ever experienced in your life. And what you'll find, not always, but sometimes, what you'll find sometimes is that uh, the particular incident the person relates will give you a real insight, a real clue into what they base their current significance on. A man came to see me, a man and his wife, for marriage counseling a while ago, and he was consistently getting mad at his wife. He'd be out mowing the lawn and she'd say, Annie, I thought you were going to do something else. You promised me you'd take down the screens today. And he would just literally get furious, as mad as he could be, and ignore his wife for days. The relationship had fallen apart. They came to see me. Now, whenever I hear of a man getting mad, I say, blocked goal. When I say blocked goal, I say, what's the goal? 
And in order to understand the goal, I have to understand what that person was taught as a youngster is the means of his becoming significant. Because whatever he believes he needs for significance is what becomes his goal, and then when his wife locks it, he becomes angry. Do you follow all that? And so in order to understand what his goal was, in order to understand what he believed he needed to be significant, I asked him the question, what was the greatest hurt you've ever experienced? Now let me give you an opportunity to sneak into a therapist's office and sit quietly over in a chair and to watch what happened this particular day with this man in my office. This is how he did it. This is what you would have seen if you had been there. I said to him, I said, uh, Bill, it wasn't his name. I said, Bill, by the way, you should always call your patients by their real names. I once had a case where I saw a fellow named Pat, a boy named Pat, and the next guy was named Mike. And uh, Mike came in, and I had been seeing like seven or eight in a row, you know, and Mike came in, and Mike was saying that, you know, my real problem is people just don't seem to notice me or, or, or care about who I am. And I said, well, Pat, you've got to understand. And, <clears throat> very important to remember names. But just to change this guy's name to Bill for the moment, I said, Bill, I said, tell me, what's the greatest hurt? What's the greatest hurt you ever experienced? And here's how Bill responded. And if you were there, you'd have seen this. Bill said, well, let me see. Greatest hurt. Oh, I don't know. I can't think of anything in particular. Well, well, yeah, I can, I can think of one thing. <laughs> yeah. I guess that was it, you know. What happened, Bill? Well, I was about, uh, let's see, I was about maybe, oh, 10, I guess, 9 or 10 or 11, I forget, somewhere in there. And uh, I played, played ball, played Little League Baseball, and uh, da Dad would never come to the games. That really, that was hard. But, you know, I, I handled that, but one, one particular day, Dad, Dad, um, that came to the game. And man, I was so excited. My father was in the stands and he was going to see me play ball and I was, oh, see, I was so thrilled with that. And that really meant a lot to me, I'll tell you, as a young kid. And I got to the game and Dad was there in the stands and I got up to bat and I was really wanting to hit the ball well, you know. And the ball came in and I hit it. The ball went way, the ball went way over the center fielder's head. And I remember I, I, I ran around the bases. I ran. I was so happy. I hit the ball over the center fielder's head, and I ran around first and second and third, and I ran into home, and I had a home run, and I was so excited. And I looked up to see, you know, to see Dad up there cheering. And I looked up, and <laughs> Dad didn't even see it. He said it was turned. cried for the next 10 minutes, and so did I. Tell me what impact that would make on a 10-year-old boy. What would he learn? I'm going to get recognition for what I do. I'm cutting the lawn. My wife does not give me recognition. And I'm mad. Here's a man who was preoccupied with his own significance. He learned that what he needed was recognition. But that's not true. He didn't need recognition from his wife, but he didn't know he didn't need recognition from his wife. 
He was preoccupied with his own needs. I wonder how many of us are preoccupied with our own needs. Do you know how to change that? I often tell people to get a 3 by 5 card out and on one side to put down a sentence something like this. In order to be a worthwhile, significant adult male, in order to be a worthwhile human being, I need recognition from my wife, or I need the approval of people, or I need to make a lot of money, or I need whatever the person might think he needs. I said, now I want you to write that down on one side of your card. On the other side of your card, I want you to write down, because Jesus Christ has a plan for my life, my significance is already wrapped up. And I need nothing other than what the Lord has provided me in order to be significant. Write that out in your 3x5 card, I tell people. And every time during the day, keep it in your wallet or in your pocket or someplace or tape it up to your bathroom mirror so when you're brushing your teeth and shaving, you can look at it. And every time that you start getting upset, pull out your three-by-five card and decide which tape you really believe. And stick in the right tape into your tape recorder and start talking to yourself. And when you're out there cutting grass and your wife calls out and says, why don't you do something else? And inside you feel, mm, change tapes. Change tapes. Whip out your card and say, I need my wife's recognition. Well, then I am mad. Whoop, wrong side. I don't need my wife's recognition. Oh, then I can handle it. Now, your feelings won't just all of a sudden dissipate when you play the right tape. As you play the right tape, your stomach will still stay in knots for, you know, a month, a year, whatever. <laughs> but at that point, on the basis of that which is true, on the basis of the truth that your needs really are met in Jesus Christ, you can make a choice to live accordingly. And you can choose, in spite of the fact that you'd like to go wring your wife's neck, you can choose, because you're playing the right tape, to turn to your wife, give her a smile, and say, honey, I'll take care of it in a little bit, love you a lot. And that's total hypocrisy to your feelings, but again, as I mentioned yesterday, that's okay. Nothing's wrong with being hypocritical to your feelings. Step one in the downfall of a husband is be preoccupied with your own significance. Step two. Notice in verse 9 of Esther chapter 1, Queen Vashti was doing her own thing. She was giving a banquet. She was busy. What the king want? Verse 10 and 11. I want her here. I don't care what she's doing. I want her here. Step number two. If you want to be a poor husband, expect your wife to do whatever makes you feel good. Expect your wife to do whatever makes you feel good regardless of where she is. I don't know how many wives have told me that their husbands can't stand it when they're sick. Fever of 104 and a husband saying, but who's going to get my breakfast? <laughs> and the wife is under, under pressure then. She feels like, oh, I'm not allowed to be sick, you know. And so then she has to, you know, put an ice pack in her head and stumble into the kitchen and make breakfast for her demanding husband who's preoccupied only with his own needs. Because he's preoccupied with his significance, it all follows in order here, because he's concerned with his significance, the next step is demand that your wife respond in certain ways. Demand that whatever will make you feel good is what she will do. That so often enters into the physical relationship. And yet Corinthians is so clear when Paul says that the husband's body is there for the pleasure of his wife. And vice versa. As you approach the physical relationship, it isn't a matter of saying what makes me feel good. It's a matter of saying what makes you feel good. As your wife is hurting with a, a sickness or she's depressed or she's down or whatever, what a lot of us as husbands do is simply say, come on, don't be like that. Shape up. Everything will be all right. What's the matter? You're too sensitive. You're just a woman. And we say it that fast oftentimes. 
as opposed to saying, wait a minute, I'm not preoccupied with my significance. My thinking of my wife is not what's going to make me feel good. My thinking towards my wife is what's going to make her feel good. That's going to be my concern. But a poor husband is one who demands that his wife do whatever make him, makes him feel good. So he demands, I want a cup of coffee. Wives, when your husband says, I want a cup of coffee, in that demanding terms, you have three choices. <laughs> Choice number one, you can play the wrong tape in your own mind and say, my security depends upon my husband's approval. Therefore, like an erotic puppet, I will now get out of my chair and go pour him a cup of coffee and bring it to him so he won't get mad at me. Let me tell you, you are not ministering to your husband by getting him a cup of coffee. You're protecting yourself. It's a self-centered action. And it's sinful. That's one option you have. A lot of you do. Second option you have is, hey, wait a minute, Charlie Brown. Let me tell you something. You don't run my life. I heard, I heard Larry Crabb say submission doesn't mean you've got to do everything you're told. So I'm going to tell you to get your own coffee. That's not ministering to your husband either. There's a third option. The third option is, you play the right tape, you say, Lord, this klutz of a husband of mine <laughs> is right now demanding something and that really makes me angry. Uh-oh, anger. Let's see, block goal, goal desires. Let me see. My goal is that he treat me nicer. Wrong. That's got to be a desire. Lord, may he treat me nicer. Goal, be a godly wife. Okay. Let's see. Now, what is the way to fulfill my goal? I don't have to do anything. A lot of you folks, what you do, a lot of us folks, if I say, why'd you do that? Well, I had to. Why'd you get up at 6.30 this morning? Well, I had to. Why'd you go to work? Well, I have to. Lives are full of have-tos. Why'd you get him a cup of coffee? Well, I had to. No, 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 no. Christian's life is not full of have-tos. It's full of choose-tos. I don't have to pray for the missionaries. But because I understand that the missionary enterprise is God's plan and God has called me to himself in a way that he wants me to support the missionaries by prayer and I love the Lord and I love the missionary enterprise, therefore I choose to pray. I might not feel like it at a given moment, but I choose to. So the Christian wife then would say, I got my goals and desires straight, my desire is that he treat me differently, but I can't assume responsibility for that. It breaks Crab's cardinal principle of mental health. My goal is rather that I be a godly woman. What's a godly woman do? A godly woman is one who submits to her husband by ministering to his needs. I choose to be what God wants me to be. And after all that mental work, you turn to your husband and say, I'd love to get you a cup of coffee. <laughs> and that's your third option. Sorry, ladies, for the disappointment. <laughs> Couldn't, couldn't hear some comment there. Maybe I shouldn't have. I'm not sure. The second step in being a poor husband, expect your wife to do whatever makes you feel good. Third step, in being a poor husband, get mad when she doesn't. First step, be preoccupied with your own significance. Second step, expect your wife to do whatever makes you feel good. Third step, get mad when she doesn't perform the way you want her to. Verse number 12. Esther chapter 1. Queen Vashti did not do what her husband wanted. Then the king became very angry. Why? He had a blocked goal. Held a grudge against his wife. Boy, that makes me mad what she did. I'll show her. Step 4. Being a poor husband. Seek guidance while still mad. 
Notice verse 13. Then, notice the word then. Then the king said to the wise men, when was then? Then when the king was thoroughly angry and bitter and fed up with his wife, then he says, now what should I do about it? He never dealt with his anger. Do you see? Are you mad at your wife or something? You take the anger, you stick it in your left leg somewhere, and you say, I'll do what's right. Lord, what do you want me to do? I'll do it, miserable woman. Or do you say, whoops, wait a minute. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. I being in the way the Lord led me. Wait a minute, the Lord is not going to lead me, the Lord is not going to hear me unless I'm walking in the light, unless I don't regard iniquity in my heart. doesn't mean pretend it isn't there, it means face the fact that it is there and deal with it. And say, wait a minute, rather than seeking guidance while you're still fed up and while your heart is still wrong and while you're still furious at your wife, say, wait a minute, before I ask, Lord, how do you want me to treat my wife? Let me say, first of all, what's wrong with me? Why am I so mad at my wife? What's going on here? Uh-oh, got the goals and desires mixed up again. My goal is to be a man of God not to get my wife to perform according to my tune. Lord, I acknowledge my anger. Dealing with anger is two steps in my mind. Number one, you acknowledge that you're angry. Yes, Lord, I am angry. I stand before you as an angry, sinful husband. I acknowledge it. And then, Lord, I reaffirm my commitment to reach the goal of being what you want me to be. for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To subscribe, visit LargerStory.com.